episode of the Edmonton Journal Press Gallery. We're going to be talking about who is in the BC House now that that oddball election is over and done with. And of course, we're going to talk about what it means for Alberta too. We are their their neighbours and there's a bit of overlap there. Uh, The house here in Alberta might get a break soon. Those lucky politicians don't want to have to work more than three weeks in a row. Uh, They might actually also extend the session. So that means more question period. More points of order all round. And finally, we're going to talk about the kids inside the house where Serenity was living before her death and some of the implications from that as well. Well, let's kick off with the BC election because I know, oh, elections, such fun. Graham, did you actually stay up and watch this as it was? Yeah, happening? it was fascinating. At first I thought, did you actually? I did. Oh. <laughs> I went to oh, bed. I figured I'd, I'd catch up. There was like, going <laughs> back and morning. forward, back and forward, and we thought, who's going to win this? And you have, this is the numbers here. 87 seats in their legislature. You need 44 to get a majority. Liberals have 43 at this point. The NDP has 41, Ooh. and the Greens have three. So you have this little rump party holds a balance of power. Now, they're still counting. They're doing another 175,000 votes to be cast. These, these are counts, recounts. So this may change um, the numbers. And people are talking about the Liberals may get one more seat to get the important 44. But even getting 44 is problematic because one person has to become the Speaker. Now, the Liberals could appoint their Speaker, and people say, well, the, then the Speaker has to keep breaking the tie votes all the time. There's a problem with that protocol with the Speaker. If it's in your own party, the Speaker must uh, vote with the status quo it's not just a case of you know voting what he wants to do. There's a precedent for how the Speaker votes. And also, we can imagine what it's like having tie votes all the time in the House, and the Speaker has to keep breaking that tie. <laughs> we saw that happen with the ethics, um, all-party committee yeah. on ethics. Went really well, too, Where didn't you it? have equal number of votes on the government side, the opposition side, yeah. and the chair has to keep breaking the, 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 the tie. And then the committee implodes, and they <laughs> exactly. have to get rid of it. It just becomes a real problem. Anyway, so... You have this really interesting vote in British Columbia, but of course for Alberta, the really interesting thing is the Greens hold a balance of power, it looks like, and the Greens are against pipelines, and this is a major problem for Notley because she's all about getting that pipeline, the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion to Tidewater, because this gives her um, clearance on the whole issue of the carbon tax. We've got a social license here because we have this climate leadership plan that includes phasing out coal. And if this pipeline is tripped up by the Green Party or the NDP in British Columbia, that's going to be a major problem for Notley. Now, of course, government here has said, well, it's got, it's, it's okay, great, you know, it's been passed. The National Energy Board said it's fine. Ottawa said it's fine. Really, there's not many mechanisms they can use. Notley has said that. Um, Energy Minister Mark McKay-Boyd has said that as well. Jason Kenney said that uh, as well. Yeah, because he's part of the NDP government. <laughs> um, so... That's what they're. No, but the argument is, is that the decision's been yes, made by the exactly. by the federal government. Yes, but then there is a worry that they yes. could go and do other little things. Mischief, mischief makers. Absolutely. Like, what kind of mischief could they do, Graham? Well, there's a couple of things they could do is um, more court interventions, and it's limited. Now, there's two issues here. One, the country is delayed through more court interventions. I know there's when they're looking at the Northern Gateway pipeline. Um, it was Enbridge was worried that BC would discover there was no more hydropower to power the pumping stations and things like that. So problems could cause all kinds of problems. Um, But the issue here isn't just, could they kill it? No. What they could do is delay it. And a delay is as good as a kill when it comes to Notley. And so she's been telling people, look, the climate leadership plan is in place. We'll have this 
uh, pipeline under construction by the end of 2017. If it's delayed another year, a year and a half, that's just in time for the next provincial election. Mm. And then she cannot go to the public and say, look, my leadership plans actually got you a pipeline under construction. If there's no construction by 2019, she's in serious trouble. And with jobs as well. She's promising jobs to come alongside that. See, what, what has fascinated me about all of this, reading from afar, is that you would think, if you had just arrived here from a foreign country, and you said, oh, the NDP plus the Greens, well, that they have practically as many votes as the government. So, you know, maybe the NDP should form government and, and have a coalition. But that only makes sense if, if you thought that the Greens and the NDP liked each other. And they <laughs> really don't. I was just astonished from this side of the Rocky Mountains at the amount of vitriol between those two parties. Mm. It's personal, too. It's yeah. very, I mean, you know, the, the clash between Andrew Weaver, uh, a respected academic in his other life, um, as leader of the Greens and, and the NDP, has been absolutely fascinating to watch a complete uh you know, civil war and breakdown in breakdown in social order between those two parties. So you know the so people were even talking about oh you know maybe Andrew Weaver will go and join the you know the center right liberals uh, and and get a seat at the cabinet table. And I thought, oh British Columbia, uh, <laughs> you have you. <laughs> Only you could make Alberta's politics look boring. <laughs> and actually, there is some kind of precedent for that, which is when the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats in the UK joined, made a coalition to form government, and it absolutely decimated the Liberal Democrats in the next election. So I, if, if I'm the Green Party, you have to look at that and say, there's a lot of risks here. And I guess maybe the other example of that going well is uh, Bob Ray. Um, forming with the Liberals in Ontario before they actually formed government, that NDP party. And if you talk to Bob Ray, he said it went pretty well and it made them look like they could govern and then they got a majority. Um, So there are risks and benefits here, I think. And uh, I think one more thing that we need to remember too is that we've got one judicial recount um, one seat, the NDP won by nine votes. Yep. So there's a your... A friend of mine actually lives in that row. Oh, really? She said <laughs> Did she, she vote? Po- she, yeah, she posted on Facebook, uh, you're welcome and sorry. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Just to Courtney cover all Comox. her bases. That's Courtney Comox. And the reason the Liberals might win it is because uh, their candidate is a former base commander in Comox. Uh, and a lot of absentee ballots right. may be cast by yeah. military yeah. personnel yeah. who then may come back and vote for their former base commander. That's why they're thinking that one's going to flip. Yeah. yeah, and actually the, one of the stranger things too is a lot of those absentee ballots, they're taking forever to count. They're, they're not going to be done for a while. Um, Two weeks at least. Yeah, it, w- it seems crazy to me. But I mean, that, that still is a big, you know, things are up in the air. And even if that one seat's flips, you get a majority, not the best case majority, as Graham explained, but uh, it, it's going to be really interesting. And, you know, I was reading the Globe editorial about this, and I, I I don't know what this means for Alberta, because if you are the Liberals and you're governing with, even if it's just kind of like ad hoc support from the Greens, where they vote with you generally, um, or if it's a coalition, um you know, I, I really don't think that Trans Mountain's in too much danger at that point. I don't think they would make it a deal breaker. And the only way they can do those kind of delaying tactics is if they actually form government. So if you see an NDP Green coalition forming government, that's when they're able to do the kind of court challenges and the delays that um, would actually slow it down. But, you know, at that point, it would be the Liberals generally in charge of the government and that kind of bureaucratic um, uh, mischief 
it's harder to do if you're not the senior partner in the coalition. So um, it'll be really, I don't think any of us really knows. And the, the reason most of us don't know is the smoke hasn't even cleared in this election yet. So I would imagine the government is just as curious about this and just as apprehensive about this as anyone. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, what, what a fun, what a fun election <laughs> that was. Because I don't, you don't usually get jealous when you're an Alberta reporter <laughs> looking at other provinces, but this one does make me a little bit jealous. <laughs> I'm still okay. And but. so he's leaving. Yeah. So off he goes to Ottawa. <laughs> <laughs> Speak, uh. So the House here in Alberta, speaking back to Alberta politics, um, there are thoughts that they're going to uh, throw in an extra constituency week for MLAs, uh, potentially after the May long weekend, so everyone can have an extra. Extra bit of camping there. Lucky them. Um, or, as Paula pointed out to me before the podcast, no, speaking with their constituents and working hard. Mm-hmm. So right Which now, they actually do. I mean, they, they do seem to work very hard. Well, right now we have the session ending June the 1st, I think, right? Yeah, correct. So there is rumblings that it may extend for another week. Um, the reason being that the NDP still has to put through its child welfare legislation. Child Services Minister uh, Danielle Larave has promised that changes will come through this spring as a result of the Ministerial Child Intervention Panel. Uh, and she reiterated Seriously? that again. Yep. And she, well, the first lot of recommendations because they made, they threw in draft recommendations to the ministry, I think it was early... Yeah, it was early April. But those recommendations are so vague. And the first so, set, yeah. I mean, how you concoct, how you concoct sensible public policy out of that all right well i i i Paula is shaking I, her head for those listening I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not actually speechless that is not a thing that actually happens but, <laughs> uh, uh, but if you were conspiratorial minded you might think maybe they had a good idea of what they were going to do anyways and they were just letting this panel run its course oh if you were <laughs> None of us would ever think something like that. <laughs> but, I mean, something else, I, I think this is probably less likely, but um, some people were floating the idea that they've been talking about changing the labor code. And mm-hmm. um, the reason that that might be an option is that they did do a very short consultation period, and they took a lot of political heat for it. And uh, just this general idea of why would you take a bunch of heat for this short consultation period um, and then not actually push through some legislation mm. um, maybe that's why but I think you're probably right it's child welfare stuff. Yeah, the thing is they're kind of caught on that issue with labor relations code and the employment standards code because on the one hand they think it's a no brainer and they're probably right to bring in changes to the employment standards code dealing with giving people a job protected day off if they're sick without getting fired mm. but if they bring that in then they're going to start looking then at the labor relations code and that bigger issue is giving unions uh, and the easier access to get themselves accredited in in uh, workplaces. So the two are joined together. One, they want to get done like today, but they can't bring it in because they're going to get hammered if they change the law on labor relations code. And Wild Rose would like to see this. Um, I was speaking with a couple of them yesterday and would like to see the um, labor relations bill come in this session, but then have the summer to actually consult yeah. on the bill itself. Similar to what happened with the Municipal Government Act, right? Like it was introduced, yeah. then everyone could look at what was in this Absolutely. gigantic piece of legislation that was going to make a, a ton of changes, and then they could have their say, and then they could go and actually debate in the House, which seems like a much more reasonable Absolutely. way of going about and things. the thing is the government won't even commit to that we've asked no. the government over and over again and again would, and again would you bring an interim report out mm. looking at the changes and then debate it over the summer and they won't even tell us what their plans are for that no decisions have been made graham i know <laughs> hey but speaking of that quickly before i forget um end of the month we'll have the interim report from the boundaries commission 
Oh, yeah. 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 That's going to be interesting as yeah. well. Go where uh, nerds were like, oh wow, boundaries commission report. <laughs> <laughs> Not no, the interim boundary commission's report. The thing is, no, that's important, Paula, because what happens? People don't don't, don't pay attention right now until they see, uh oh, we'll lose a seat in, in an area, whatever, and then people get really upset. So they'll potentially there'll be interesting um, uh, fallout from it, this. I it'll agree. Be, it'll be interesting to see how it'll give us a sense of how this is going to play because. You know, this is a commission. It's not, you know, they they do an independent study of there's just some really tricky debates to be had about, you know, you have these rural ridings that are absolutely massive geographically, but they have 15,000 people in them or something. And then you have other ridings that have are tiny in a city and they have tons of people. And trying to balance out the numbers is hard because then you have these rural ridings where MLAs have to travel ridiculous distances to do it. So they're trying to find a balance there. But our cities. <laughs> What? So I, just, I mentioned this. This great Stuart goes running off on a. This is good. This is good. Please, I love. I'm this. just saying why it's important. No, it is. <laughs> and and it's a, it is. It won't be out for another few weeks. You know we'll what, discuss that's it. it I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> he, wants, he wants to say peace now. now. No, I Graham. love this. I love the fact that uh, we're such Let nerds that uh, so you mentioned the, this. The interim, and enough, off goes Stuart. <laughs> the interim report is important because it'll tell us if this is going to benefit the NDP because people are generally moving into urban areas. And they generally are doing better in urban areas. So that means we might get more urban ridings. <laughs> you know what? I wish I could swear on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, you can. <laughs> no, he's so adorable. Yeah. <laughs> but I, don't, yeah. I don't think the boss has listened to it. So. <laughs> His mother and I are so proud. <laughs> but of course, Paula, you're right. So we are expecting, well, there will be child welfare legislation specific to the death review process of when children who are in care, when in government care, when they die, there will be some changes to that process or the legislation around it and the policies around it introduced this spring. Which brings us to what has happened this week. There's been some developments around the Serenity case from public developments. Um, do you want to talk us through what's happened here? Sure. I mean, this goes back to the... F- I think there was a lot of misunderstanding this week, so I want to clarify. When Serenity and her siblings were placed in this kinship care home, there were already children of the family in the home. I always knew that those kids were likely to still be there, but of course the province wouldn't confirm that. The CBC spent some time on the reserve talking to people who reported to them that there were still kids living in the home. And it's up for dispute because it was all rumors and secondhand information how many kids are actually in the home. But uh, but the upshot was that Minister Daniel Larivey confirmed to the media and then Rachel Notley, the Premier, confirmed it again in the House that there are still children, the biological children of that kinship care family, who are in the home. Uh, that upset a lot of people because, you know, this is a home where likely a child was abused to the point of death and malnourished, where the two surviving siblings were also allegedly uh, abused and malnourished. And so the question is, what kind of family environment is this for the remaining children? Now, I had people contacting me saying it's terrible that Serenity's siblings are still in the home, and so I want to be really clear here. These are not Serenity's siblings. Serenity's siblings were reunited with their birth mother, and they're living together, as best I can tell, quite happily outside the province. So these are not, these kids would be Serenity's first and second cousins, hypothetically. 
Um, we don't know how many children are in the home. Daniel Larravee says the CBC has their facts wrong, but since Larravee wouldn't provide us with any alternative facts, um, we don't know the actual answer. There's also this very murky question that the Premier raised in the House that this is some kind of court order that has kept the kids there. But when I asked and I pressed for clarification, which court, what courtroom, under what circumstances, and did the judge who made this alleged order have all the facts about just how horrendous the abuse Serenity suffered actually was, then the government said, oh, we can't talk about any of that because that would be a violation of privacy, which is complete nonsense. Um, it was a public court proceeding, if it, if indeed there was a public court proceeding. And one of the questions that's come up here too is that there are, so the biolog- they're biological children. Now, children, or, or they may be the grandchildren of the Right. Of, of the primary residents of this home, because this home was lived in by an older couple and their adult children. So it, it's a it's an extended family situation. Right. So the problem there, though, is, and this is the government's argument here, is that if you don't have reasonable grounds to remove children from care, you can't just go in as a government and take those kids away. And that hasn't worked out well for government in the past, going in and grabbing Aboriginal kids out of homes without any cause to do so. Well, so this is where you get to the question. I mean, is it possible that this family only abused the foster children and not their own children? Sure, you can imagine that's entirely possible. I mean, there was a case in Saskatchewan in which that happened and the two girls who were under kinship care in the home, one of them was starved and beaten to death. The other one was almost at death's door. She lived, but the two biological sons of the, and and the couple was convicted of murder as, as a result. The two biological sons were fine. Right. So, you know, I mean, you think about Cinderella. I'm sure the wicked stepsisters um, were doing just fine with with mom there. The, the the question is, is it a healthy home environment? Right. I mean, even if those children weren't physically abused themselves, if they were witnesses to the abuse of another child, that is a form of violence. I mean, and clearly, this is a very dysfunctional home. But now we come back to the genesis of this whole problem. No one has ever been charged with anything, because the medical examiner's office uh, messed up, we're not allowed to swear as we've previously this, <laughs> because the medical examiner's office dropped the ball on the autopsy, uh, because the uh, the delegated First Nations Child Welfare Authority on that reserve dropped the ball and didn't turn files over to the RCMP, because this case was bollocksed from the beginning, no one has ever been charged with anything. And so it does make it harder to say, well, if there are no criminal charges, uh, how do we know that a crime took place? And this is why I'm very concerned when the government falls back on the argument that we had no choice because a judge said that those children had to stay in the home. My, my question is, did the judge have the necessary information to make an informed decision? Because if the judge didn't have access to the medical records, um, you know, if, if you said, well, a child died of, a, of an accidental because the family's the family story has always been that Serenity fell off a swing, and 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 fractured her skull by falling off a swing, and it was you know an accident of the kind that happens. So if you go to the judge and say they had a foster child who fell off a swing and died, well then of course the judge isn't going to say the children should be apprehended. But if the judge had seen what I had seen, Serenity's medical records handwritten by the doctors in that emergency room, the judge might have had a very different decision. What I don't know is. To what information was the judge privy uh, when an order was given? 
And this brings us back to to the question of privacy, which has come up a lot um, this week, not just specific to this case, but... I mean, well, I, I, something from the political... As a political reporter trying to do this story, it has been a very odd week because this broke with the CBC story and then there was a very tense, raucous scrum with Danielle Larrabee. Extremely heated. In, Probably, in, in which Michelle Belfontaine of the CBC and Emma Graney of the Edmonton Journal, I've only heard of the tape, I didn't witness it, but you nailed her to the wall. Yeah, almost and literally. And, because, and, because, and, Dean, and, Dean, Bennett, and Dean Bennett. And Dean Bennett of CP, who yes, did, who, um, who, who came in and batted cleanup. And, yeah, and <laughs> I would say almost literally nailed her to the wall because she tried to get out and she was pinned against the wall because reporters weren't moving. And it well, was we, we shuffled around shuffled in order around. to um, <laughs> lock her way because we had a lot more questions. Yeah. And as a press secretary, you tried to just say, okay, guys, that's it. Didn't say last question. Didn't say you've only got two more questions. Just tried to say, that's it. She's got to yeah. go. And, of course, this is halfway through a scrum that is an extremely important issue. Yeah. So we were not going to play along with that game. Yeah. And uh, it was one of those things, too, where, you know, Michelle was, I think, channeling the frustration and the rage that a lot of readers would be feeling and as a reporter I think it's sometimes useful to do that because then the cabinet minister can see what what really this is all about and what we are getting from our readers and what we expect to be you know transmitting to them um, but we didn't get much out of her and well uh, but what, what we got was an on the record confirmation that there are kids there yeah yeah and I, I don't know if that was deliberate or if it was just because it was one of those scrums where you can be rattled and say things you didn't mean to say um, but then you know, they, they kind of came down afterwards to press people and said, you know, we're dealing with a tough situation here. There's a lot of legal problems with releasing information and we're doing our best, um, but we can't have a cabinet minister break the law. And I mean, that's a fair perspective. And But the problem is, and Paula will know this better than anyone, is that as a reporter, you are constantly... Um, bullshitted about privacy. People will tell you everything is privacy. And when you put in a FOIP request, they'll tell you the most inane details can't be released because it's privacy. So the well has been poisoned on privacy. And as a reporter, you just can't accept that without some kind of further explanation about why it's privacy. What are you referring to? What exactly is the legal opinion here that means you can't release this? And when they tell us that they can't Larrabee wouldn't tell us how often the family has been checked on. How often are they monitored by the authorities to make sure things are okay in that house? Can't tell you that's privacy. That doesn't ring true to us. And maybe we're wrong, and as reporters we can be wrong, but we have a reason to be skeptical here. You need to explain further why that's the case. Why is this privacy? And they haven't been doing that. And and it circles back to the subject matter of the child welfare, the child intervention panel this week, which is what they heard from um, representatives of the delegated First Nations authority that provide children's services on many of Alberta's First Nations reserves. Not all of them. Uh, but in this province, we have 17 delegated authorities that are sort of self-governing child welfare for bans. The problem is that under an agreement with Ottawa, those bans are funded federally at much less, at a much lower rate than the provincial child welfare system. Uh, I know the reserve where Serenity's foster family lives. I'm not allowed to say it because that could serve to identify all of these kids. It's a relatively small reserve. Um, but it is a reserve that does have a delegated First Nations child welfare authority. So the province is not directly responsible for what is happening 
on that reserve. It's the Delegated Child Welfare Authority that would have to make the decision to apprehend those children. We know from the testimony that was heard this week at the panel that the workers who work for those Delegated Child uh, Welfare Authorities earn, you know, on average fifteen to $20,000 a year less. They have less training. They have fewer supports. Um, those uh, agencies are chronically underfunded and under-resourced. They don't have money for early intervention and prevention uh, programs. So, you know, it is yet another way that the province can, def- you know, deflect and diffuse responsibility for what happens. But it's true. I mean, Daniel Larrabee can't personally go in and apprehend those children. That's the decision of uh, of an arm's length agency that functions on that reserve, an arm's length agency, which frankly may not have the capacity to, to handle its own caseload. And further to Stuart's earlier point about privacy, that's been an issue too that we've been fighting against this week when it comes to releasing homicide victim names yeah, here be- in Edmonton. Because we had a, we have a, another tragedy in Edmonton that was announced by the Edmonton Police Service this week, uh, the death of an 11-day-old infant. Uh, that infant's mother now charged with second-degree murder for allegedly poisoning the child with methamphetamine. Um, a, a horrible case in which the police decided to release the mother's name but not the 11-day-old baby's name, citing privacy concerns. A- and this is problematic because it, it prevents us from being able to track whether this child was also receiving uh, protective services from uh, children's services in Edmonton and whether this child should have been receiving protective services. Um, you know, and, and the police are again standing on this. They have to protect the baby's privacy. This 11-day-old baby. Um, the privacy argument is just bizarre. I was, I don't know if I'm happy or worried to see Kathleen Ganley, the justice minister, announcing this week that she's going to try to come up with some sort of provincial-wide policy on whether on when and whether homicide victims should be named. I mean, that could be good in the sense that we'd get clarity and we'd have, you know, we'd have one argument to fight uh, instead of police chiefs making it up as they go along on an ad hoc basis. Or police com- communications departments. Yeah, yeah, Edmonton. From, yeah, from community to community. Uh, but I am worried that, you know, this could lead to the adoption of a blanket-wide policy in this province in which we never find out homicide victims' names or only at the discretion or the whim of of police officers at the time. And that's very problematic. Well, Ganley has said she doesn't necessarily want a policy. Um, she wants everyone to work together and figure it out because it is also problematic if you've got the, you know, the justice minister coming in and saying, you must or you must not release homicide victim names. Do you know what I mean? Like, as a justice minister can't be making blanket statements well, to police. Well, because there, there are going to be times when police legitimately shouldn't release the names, uh, particularly if, if, you know, if this is an open investigation and releasing information could prejudice the investigation. I'm willing to accept as a journalist that there are going to be times when not naming a victim is essential to the integrity of a police investigation. But Edmonton Police has taken the piss absolutely on this. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I'm sorry. How does not releasing the name of this dead baby help anyone? I mean, it, it's asinine. And it's and I really do feel like they're making it up as they go along. And the only, you know, I think something people should be very acutely aware of is that when the police do this, it inhibits everybody's ability to scrutinize what the police are doing. And the police can talk all they want about victims, but really the biggest effect here is that we can't make sure they're doing their job properly because the way we find that out is we write these stories. We talk to people involved in it. And 
we can be kind of a disinterested, um, not an investigator, but someone who's getting that, getting that side of things. And uh, I think maybe the thing that would, I've said this before on this podcast, but the thing that would surprise people is a lot of people want to talk. A lot of people want to talk about the things that happened. They want to talk about how the investigation is going, how they feel about it, if they feel like it's going properly. And there's no venue for that other than the media. So I, I think the police know what they're doing. I think they're deliberately trying to box out the media here. And I, it, it seems to me when you have the police chief circulating you know, letters to the editor from victims or from people arguing their side of the story to reporters, it seems like a very cynical tactic to use those victims to defend your case. You can defend your case on the merits. I think that would be worth doing. And to circle back, though, the politics of this with um, with uh, the Notley government, this is a huge problem for them politically because they're the party that stands up for the downtrodden. And here you've got the Wild Rose lecturing them during question period. And it's interesting. I've been around long enough to remember when the NDP would be hammering away at the government for covering things up. And Rachel Notley was one saying the government was hiding behind, you know, the, the, the FOIP or the secrecy uh, unnecessarily. And I remember going back to Klein um, when they had an issue like this. I think it's under people on welfare and what was happening. Klein's people would actually leak stuff to friendly media to undermine the credibility of people um, who were actually maybe complaining about the government. The government could not discuss the case because it's private. Stuff would be leaked to the media to undermine the credibility of people in the welfare roles, for example. This time around, the NDP is saying, well, of course, we're not going to leak anything. But in a sense, that they're, they're being hammered by the same arguments that they were making yep. when they were in opposition. Yep. And you're seeing how the government – go back to that news conference with Larrabee this week – why they held it, I have no idea. Uh, they go up and say that the CBC got this wrong. Okay, what was the correct information? Can't tell you. And even things like... <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was just bananas. Even, even things like, as Stuart mentioned, like how often do you go into that home to check on these children? I can't tell you. Once a week, once a month, once every six months, that, that's, that's a private thing. How is that possibly an issue when you... That will not identify these children. And, and let's remember what's at stake here. Serenity wasn't just... She didn't just die. There's physical evidence of long-term systemic sexual abuse, uh, you know, anal and vaginal rape. If there are other young girls in that home, how do... I mean, I, I hope to God that Rachel Notley and Daniel Larivee are right and that those children are safe. Um, but God alone knows at this point whether that's the case. Yeah. Just just to continue from what Graham said, um, that press conference, it was a 30-second statement from Danielle Larivee and then 19 and a half minutes of her getting screamed at by reporters. But it was one of the strangest, uh, weirdest, self-inflicted wounds I've ever seen a government do. And it just goes to what you were saying earlier, that they... The atmosphere in question period is just poisonous whenever serenity comes up. It's I forgot what it was like because it was like that in December, and it, it just it's just a horrible feeling in the air. And it's because the government does not feel like anyone has the right to question them on this, and they feel like they're doing the right thing, and nobody else should be allowed to even question that because you know it's a party with. Uh, uh, half a dozen social workers in it and people who have, you know, done this, they've been on this issue for years and years and they've gone after the PCs for it. And they, I think that attitude is what makes them so bad at handling it because fair enough, you can't, 
you can't say anything. There's privacy laws, but it's the tone of the moralistic self righteousness. Yeah, it it doesn't come off Nailed well. It. <laughs> and it they it I'm even getting the impression too that they think that the reporters have cynical or malevolent objectives objectives in uh, asking the questions about this. Rick McIver to me does not seem like he has cynical. I mean, sure, there's a political side to this, but he's near tears every time he talks about it. And I don't think you can fake that every time. It does seem like the serenity issue has gotten under the skin of a lot of opposition MLAs genuinely. And sure, there's a political side to this where you can hammer the government and inflict a wound. But I I think it's wrong to say that this is purely political. I think it is a very emotional issue for a lot of MLAs. But, you know, the the way they've handled this whole thing, I mean, this week we haven't talked about this yet, but they retroactively have added the first First Nations expert to their child welfare review paneling. How is it possible that they, you know, the the NDP set up a panel to look at Alberta's child welfare Mm -hmm. system without a First Nations person on the panel. It and was, then yeah. they appointed somebody who didn't even come to the meeting. His uh, car broke down. Uh, you know, it's like, seriously, you can't you can't send a taxi? Uh, you can't get a rent? I mean, and, and so today, this week was the first time in this whole public theater, uh, this political theater of the child review panel, that I felt like we heard from real people. I mean, we had uh, you know, you know, about a dozen uh, of these delegated First Nations uh, child welfare directors there. They were amazing. They really spoke from the heart, and I think they opened the panel members' eyes to a lot that the panel panel hasn't seen because they've been talking to a lot of bureaucrats and a lot of that kind of... They've been seeing a lot of PowerPoint slides, a lot yeah. of PowerPoint slides, and these were real people saying, hey, we can't get funding for dental care on reserve, which means that kids have to have their jaws broken so that they can eat. Yeah. You Stuff know. like that. It was, and it, it did. It highlighted the disparity between federal and the provincial federal issue, which is of course huge. Which means that Danielle Larivey is, in fact, kind of, she's in charge, is overseeing these. They still kind of report back to her, but they're being funded by Ottawa. It's just a, it's a shit show situation. Anyway, on that note, um, <laughs> let's move to our. Can you use that term on a podcast? Shit show. I used it once at a news conference. I believe. I didn't realize that I did that. This is how. <laughs> Often nice. This is how Aussie you are. <laughs> yeah. Are we sure I said that, Graham? I think the tape will show that. Just for, just for that, Stuart is leaving. Yeah. <laughs> he's sick of my, my potty mouth my and he's ears. off to Ottawa. <laughs> uh, let's move to our regular segment. Good stuff from the gallery. Stuart, what do you have for us this week, mate? Uh, I'm. This is a highly trafficked piece, but if anyone hasn't read it, the Washington Post piece about... In the U.S., they call this a TikTok piece, where you do the every second of a very high-profile event. So when Comey was fired, the Washington, you you may have heard about Sean Spicer being in the bushes. This is where that detail came <laughs> from. Among, first. among the bushes. Among the bushes. Near or among or, or, the bushes. Or behind. <laughs> not, but not actually in the bushes. Yeah. And actually, if you read it now, it has one of the most hilarious corrections you'll ever see on the story. But uh, beyond that detail, it is a, just a fascinating riveting account of how all this happened and it is just absolutely shocking it is incredible that they would do this and not lock down the staff to be leaking contradictory stuff to what the president was saying the president was contradicting his own comments anyways but it's just unusual it's incredible that even the senior staff can't stay on the lines or they just didn't have lines in the first place 
Bola, what do you have? I'm going to recommend two entirely different things. One is one of the most delightful profiles I've ever read from GQ magazine of Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, which looks (laughs) into the possibility that he may run for the presidency. (laughs) Um, It is just the most... God bless America. It is the funniest... It is the funniest read. Um, It is just a brilliant piece piece of writing from GQ. Um, uh, from the, from the ridiculous to the to the horrific, um, I was in Toronto last week, so I was not here. Um, uh, happy to be there when the Edmonton Journal picked up its National Newspaper Award in the breaking news category for our team coverage with the Edmonton Sun and the Fort McMurray Today of the Fort McMurray Wildfire. I was there also to lose the National Newspaper Award nomination for political writing for my, my work on the Serenity story. Um Thank you to the Globe and Mail, which stomped me into the ground. But um, uh, as an adjunct to that, I was invited into the Canada Land Studios to speak with guest host Omar Mawalam, uh, from you know, a very fine Edmonton journalist, uh, who let me rant and rave for 45 uninterrupted minutes about what's wrong with Alberta's child welfare system. I, I'm, I'm really happy to say that the Canada Land people say there was a tremendous response, a huge number of downloads uh, to a podcast that was not about Toronto media gossip. Um, And so in in the spirit of Donald Trump and malignant narcissism, I highly recommend (laughs) that you listen to me talking to Omar Mualim on the Canada Land podcast. It is very good. And you got into a lot of stuff that we don't have enough time to get into here every week. That seems we're talking about serenity. Um, I'm going to recommend everything to do with Eurovision. Eurovision is this weekend. It is the world's greatest song contest. It is also a fabulous exercise in geopolitics and knowing which nation stands with which. I'm going to put up a a varied number of links here. I highly recommend you watch the you watch the competition live broadcast from Ukraine at 1 p.m. on Saturday. It's going to be raining anyway. The hockey is over, unless you're not an Oilers fan, Stuart. Um, <laughs> so I highly recommend it. Eurovision is one of the best things on earth. I stand by that statement. Graham, what do you have for us? She also eats Vegemite, so, you know. Hey, hey now. <laughs> Vegemite is, is the stuff of God. Graham? <laughs> Graham's just yeah. See, Graham was going to suggest Graham's Eurovision. I, I was going to suggest Vegemite. <laughs> um, two things, quickly. Uh, the new se- season of Veep is on HBO. If you get HBO, it's definitely worth watching Veep. Of course, it's a vice president. It's a, it's a comedy. It's where politics meets comedy. Which, of course, <laughs> which is just like real life. <laughs> exactly. It happens all the time. And second of all, I sent you the link already to uh, an article on um, just how unpopular is Trump looking at the polls. But it's, also, it's a really good primer on how to read polls, what to look for in polls. He's got 84% support from Republican voters. Um, so it's interesting to see, actually, yeah, exactly. I think people who, I think it's still, overall, it's like 30% of the people in the U.S. still think he's doing a great job. Like, over, the, over and above. It's a wonderful job. A third of the population, basically. But these polls, um, but, so this, this writer is looking at how do you actually read polls and how do you actually dissect them and look in terms of how the methodology is done, who's actually doing it. So it's also a good primer on just how to look at a poll. Fantastic. Guys, thank you so much for joining me this week. Stuart, Paula, thank you for coming back, and Graham Thompson, <laughs> and Sean Butts as well, our photographer, videographer, who is here taking a bit of this to put on, filming a bit of this rather, to put online at edmontonjournal.com where you can find all the episodes of the Press Gallery podcast. You can also subscribe to SoundCloud, iTunes, and TuneIn Radio and get all the latest as soon as uh, we edit them and put them out. hope that you join us this time next week at the Press Gallery. In the bushes. <laughs>